Well, I've been challenged this past week. And the challenge, the challenge came out of a, uh, of a line, one line in the recent fighter verses that came out of, um, of Ephesians 2. I love that passage, Ephesians chapter 2. Paul, in that passage, as you remember, was describing our dilemma or the dilemma of, of all those who are outside of Christ. And he says in verse 1 that, that we who are spiritually dead, that if we are outside of Christ, we are spiritually dead. We are unable even to respond to God's gracious offer without the energizing, revelatory work of God's Spirit bringing our understanding alive of the gospel. We can't respond to it without God's work because we are genuinely, spiritually dead apart from Christ. In verse 2, he says that those who are apart from Christ are under the dominion of Satan. That's a strong idea, isn't it? But that's what it says. It says that you all once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. It's another way of describing our spiritual enemy. And he says, you once walked, you were once enslaved under that. You were enslaved not only under the dominion of Satan and enslaved by your passions, but in verse 3 he says, we are without hope. We are without hope because we are by nature children of wrath. Children of wrath. There can be no more hopeless picture of what it means to be outside of Christ today. If you are not a believer in Jesus, I could tell you a number of different things that might encourage you or motivate you to think about giving Jesus a try. But if I'm being loving... And if I'm being honest, and if I want you to understand the power of the gospel, then I have to say that if you are outside of Christ today, you are spiritually dead, trapped within the kingdom of darkness, a slave to your own passions and desires and mind, and that you are, by nature, a child of wrath, destined only for wrath at the end of your days. That is the truth. But the good news shows up in verse 4. In, in verse 4, he says those wonderful words that say this, verse 4 and 5, but God, aren't you thankful for the words, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The good news 
that follows on to that piece of bad news is that God is rich in mercy. He is rich in mercy. He is full of grace. His heart's desire is to deliver you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. His desire is to free you and to bring you into a loving relationship with Himself. I have to ask you, aren't you grateful for Jesus today? Aren't you thankful that once you were dead, but now you are alive? Aren't you thankful today? Or aren't you thankful that you have been uh, no longer trapped in the kingdom of darkness, but you're a child now of His? You are no longer a slave. You are adopted by God the Father and sealed by the Holy Spirit for all eternity. Aren't you glad? Don't you want everybody to know this? Don't you? Don't you wish that everybody in the whole world could know this joy of God's grace? You weren't as enthusiastic that time. Now, either you think I'm tricking you, which I might be. Don't we wish everybody knew it? Don't we wish everybody did? Is there joy in your heart over those realities? Don't you want everybody to know that joy? Well, I would answer with great affirmation. Yes, yes. I want everyone to know, all the world to know, this great salvation. Yes, I want the world to know. And then I would hope you didn't probe that answer too deeply. You didn't probe that answer too deeply. The challenge that has been nagging at me was the one line from the Ephesians passage that I, I didn't mention. And it's the line in verse 3 where he says this. He says, Among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Like the rest of mankind. And the question that has been percolating in my heart what about the rest? What about the rest? I can say that I joyfully concur that I want the whole wide world to know who Jesus is. Because everybody ought to know, right? Everybody ought to know you know that? Everybody ought to know who Jesus is. That's an old one, isn't it? He's the lily of the valley. He's the savior of my soul. He's the fairest of 10,000. Everybody ought to know. Okay, then what about the rest? What about the rest? 
Now, the rest, that's a, that's a big word, isn't it? There's a lot of people on this planet. And you can't necessarily, and I can't necessarily do anything about all of the rest. But let me just, let me just ask you this question. Who are the rest in your circle? Who are the rest of mankind in your circle? Think about your circle in your workplace or your neighborhood or the sports teams your kids are on or the groups that you hobby with. Your family your immediate family, who are the rest of mankind in your circle? Who in that circle is your rest that are yet to be set free, yet to embrace the gospel, yet to know this glorious truth, this glorious, glorious reality? Because if they don't, they are still, by nature, children of wrath. And wrath is a word that, that we, we cannot ignore. You can't ignore it. It's all over the Scriptures. It's all over the Scriptures. It was in the fighter verse this morning. We'll get back to that in just a second. It was in the passage in John that was read. And most people know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting, eternal life. But then in John 3.36, there's another verse. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In other words, every person born into this world with our sinfulness, our innate sinful nature, our innate rebellion against God, we are born under the wrath of God. God's judgment is upon this world. Why? Because this world has rejected him. Because this world has said no to his glory no to his ownership, no to his, his rule of our lives. From the very, very beginning, we've rejected his rulership. And so this world sits under the wrath of God. Now, wrath is one of those words that, and you've heard me teach a little bit about this before, wrath is a word that, that most often people associate with losing one's cool or losing one's temper or lashing out, reaching the, the boiling point, and then just exploding. But that is not what wrath is when it comes to God. Most of you have heard me say this before. What is the wrath of God? The wrath of God is God's settled and permanent opposition to everything that diminishes His glory. All things are made for the glory of God. We know that in Revelation, right? You are worthy for you have created all things and for your glory they were and are created. We exist for God's glory. 
We exist to reflect His goodness and His mercy and His kindness and His creativity and His love and His peace and His joy. We live to reflect that and live under His rule. When we are not living under that rule, we diminish His glory. We diminish that glory. And God is opposed, permanently opposed to that which diminishes His glory. Let me, let me read you something one author wrote about it. I, I, I thought this was good. He said, Divine wrath is not to be thought of as a celestial bad temper or, or God lashing out at those who rub Him the wrong way. Divine wrath is righteous antagonism toward all that is unholy. It is the revulsion of God's character to that which is a violation of God's will. Watch this. Indeed, one may speak of divine wrath as a function of divine love. (laughs) How can that be? For God's wrath is His love for holiness and truth and justice. Do you hear that? God's wrath is His love for holiness. It is His love for His glory. It is love for truth. It is His love for justice. It is because God passionately loves purity and peace and perfection that He reacts angrily toward anything and anyone who defiles them. J.I. Packer said this, Would a God who took as much pleasure in evil as He did in good be a good God? Would a God who did not react adversely to evil in His world be morally perfect? Surely not. But it is precisely this adverse reaction to evil which is a necessary part of moral perfection that the Bible has in view when it speaks of God's wrath. God's wrath is not God's temper tantrum. It is not His outburst. His wrath is as continually a part of His character as His love is, as His purity is, as His glory is, as His love is. All of these things are a part of God's character and who He is. And so, apart from Christ, if we are not living in relationship with Jesus, who by His cross took our punishment, by His resurrection validates our acceptance by God, and we are at that point in time when we say yes to Jesus, we are legally, positionally, clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And it is that righteousness that is always giving glory to God. That righteousness stands before God on our behalf. And so we live in that place where we are both growing in our own reflection and glory of the Lord, but also Because we are people who still battle with sin, we are always clothed in righteousness. And God is satisfied with the glory 
giving of Christ on your behalf. God is satisfied with Christ. Hello? He doesn't, he doesn't get more satisfied with you. He is satisfied with Christ. He is satisfied with what the blood has done and purchased. He is satisfied with that price that has been paid. The minute we step into Christ, all debts are paid, all sins are forgiven, and we are, as the Bible says, made new creation. What's new about us? Well, we have a new heart. We have a newness in the sense that the Spirit has come to dwell in us, but we also have a what? A new relationship to God based on our being in Christ. Don't you want everyone to know that? This glorious gospel of what God has done. This is from Romans 5. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Remember last week, we talked about these three great resurrection realities, that we are born again in Christ, that we have a living hope that anchors us in Christ, and our suffering is never meaningless in Christ. Then he says this, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still Sinners, Christ died for us. And since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, that's a strong word, but it's, it's the right word. Outside of Christ, we are enemies of God. Because we are enemies of God, because we diminish His glory, because we reject His rule, we are living under His settled opposition to us. If we persist, if we say no to that gospel, if we say no to that offer, if we choose to continue in our rebellion, we are choosing to remain enemies of God. And then he says this, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Here is the gospel message that we rejoice in. We have been justified by faith in Christ Jesus because of the blood that he shed on our behalf. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. He rose for us. He lives to make intercession 
for us. He is our advocate, our friend, our redeemer, our hope, our healer. He is our life. He is the one that we love. He is the one who has changed us on the inside so that we're no longer struggling and hoping we can keep enough rules to be okay, but instead we are joyfully living out of that life within us and longing to please our Father. That is the gospel's good news. But the gospel's bad news is that if we are not justified by His blood, then we are not saved from the wrath of God. And the wrath of God, my friends, at the end of days, the Bible says it's appointed unto men once to die, but after that to face judgment. But eventually there'll be a day when time is no more here in the way that we've known it. And it will come to a stop and we will stand before Almighty God. And God won't be stomping his feet and throwing a temper tantrum. He will simply be separating the sheep from the goats. He'll simply be separating the living from the dead. Those who are going into eternal life and those who because of their choices remain under his wrath and therefore he gives them exactly what they've asked for. No involvement by Him for eternity. He is the source of life. And so there's only death, conscious death. He is the source of love, so there is only hate. He is the source of peace, so there is only turmoil. He is the source of joy, so there is only sorrow. He is the source of healing, so there's only pain. You see, if we choose to remain under the wrath of God, if we choose to remain there, then that is all we have to look forward to. And so, if we know that, and see, here's where I'm struggling. I'm going to say something that... that um, I don't know, some of you might not show back up next week, but I don't care. I don't care. What's wrong with my heart? What's, how, how callous have I gotten? How cold have I gotten that I don't weep for those who are still under the wrath of God? See, in my mind, I know the right answer. Don't we all want the world to know? Don't we all want the rest of our mankind that we're connected to to know this great love of God, this great grace? Don't we want them to be rescued from the wrath of God and, and be brought into the loving uh, kindness and goodness of God, their Father? Don't we want that for them? Don't we care about their eternal destiny? Don't we long for them to escape hell and come to the grace of God? Don't we want that? 
And I'm just telling you today, my mind says yes, but I think my heart is too cold. It's too cold. And that grieves me. That's, that's why that question has been percolating. So, Jeff, what about the rest? What about the rest of mankind? Spurgeon said this, and I, and I wish, I wish that I could say this with as much conviction as I'm sure that he wrote it. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Oh, how much do we care? How much do we care? Now listen, listen to me. I, I've, I've been honest with you this morning about where I sense my own heart is right now. I love, I love you guys. I love being with you guys. I love pastoring you guys. I love teaching you God's word. I love doing all of that. But when it comes to those outside of Christ, why am I so often indifferent why am I so often unwilling to share? Why am I more afraid of their opinion of me than their eternal destiny? Why am I more concerned about my reputation? Why am I more concerned about not looking like an idiot? Why am I concerned about not wanting to upset the apple cart or disrupt the family? Why? If, in fact, what we say is at stake is at stake. Now, listen to me. I know this is a hard message today. I know it is. And I want to assure you, I'll be nicer to both of us next week, okay? But we're going to camp on this. Now, we're going to camp on it in a positive way. And we're going to turn to some things that I think we can do and begin to incorporate within the life of this church that will help us. And I'm excited about some of those things. But for the next couple of weeks, I just want you to know, we're going to camp on this scripture, Psalm 126, verse 6. Psalm 126, verse 6. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. He that goes out with weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come again with shouts of rejoicing, bringing his sheaves, bringing the harvest with him. I think that one of the things that we should be praying about, church, is that before we go out to sow, 
that we'll be weepers. You can't genuinely reach lost people if you don't genuinely care about lost people. You can't genuinely reach lost people if you don't have enough of a handle on the gospel yourself that it makes you weep to think of those you love, those you care about, those here and all of those in our world who don't know Christ and who remain under his wrath. Let's ask God to give us a heart for people, a fresh one. One of the great dangers of our Christian life is we get in here and we get comfortable. Right? We get comfortable. We like our folks. We like our friends. We like this. We like singing. We like worshiping. We like coming to the table. We like all of that. But if we were ever asked this question, where is the evidence of your evangelistic heart for people? What would we say? And who would we point to? And who could we rejoice in? And say, here's some of the harvest that God's allowed us the privilege of being part of. It starts by asking for his heart.